I love it when the kids are super excited about going across the hall, actually. Um, that cheer, that rallying cry every time. When If it were missing, I would be sad. And so I'm actually really thankful for Beth Beeler and her folks across the hall, all of you guys that teach our kids every week, that they're excited to be over there. We should totally give them a hand, right? Yeah, absolutely. She works really hard to keep things going over there. And if you've ever worked with kids or animals, you know. <laughs> Those are the two rules of television. No kids, no animals. And yet every year in nativities, we break that rule. Interesting. Sorry, this is doing something weird. So I actually envy those kids' excitement a little bit. I want to be honest. Um, not because they get to leave. I know some of you were thinking that. Um, you know, you can go over there any week. Just talk to Beth. She would love to have you go over there. Um, yeah, so I, I really envy their excitement. And I remember having that same kind of excitement literally about anything that was different as a child. Anyone else remember that? Maybe some of you still feel that way. Um, most of us in this room are probably world-weary adults. Right? <laughs> It might be kind of hard to have that type of anticipation because in their minds, they have no idea. Even though they go there every week, they have no idea what's going to happen across the hall. And I know that some of you come to this church because you feel the same way every week. And we play on the worship team because we feel that way too. Um, but there's something about kids that it's really easy for them to inhabit that joy of surprise or anticipation that I think for us as adults might be a little more difficult. It's kind of challenging. And so when I was a kid, uh, the anticipation uh, was kind of a motivating factor in a lot of my life, uh, really in almost everything. For example, I was talking with Dennis this morning, and we were talking about how back in our day, you really had four channels that you could watch, right? And you couldn't DVR anything. So if there was something you were excited about watching, something that you were really, really jazzed about, you actually had to be at home to watch that when it came on TV. And so if you missed the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you had to wait till next year. You couldn't watch it. Like there was this anticipation or for a movie that was going to premiere. Uh, in school, I was so excited. I anticipated recess and lunch every day. Right? And there were many of us that really anticipated that bell to ring at the very end of the day saying that we could go home. We anticipated seasons. We anticipated holidays to not be at school. And some of us feel that way about work too, probably. But nothing touched the anticipation of Christmas, though, as a kid. Like it was on. It was the bomb. And sometime in late November, this really heavy piece of mail would arrive at our house. And it was known as the Sears Wish Book. Now, J.C. Penney's had one. Montgomery Ward had one. But we were a Sears home. Okay? And so the Wish Book would show up at our doorstep. And... This was before, okay, guys, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Back before the internet, before you could go online and look at things to buy, they would actually print these things ahead of time on paper and send them to homes, like on scrolls. No, on these, <laughs> these catalogs, right? They would send these catalogs to your house. You didn't have the internet. You couldn't go to Amazon. You didn't have two-day shipping, right? You had, to, you had to plan for Christmas. And so my sister 
Brandy and I, my little sister, who's going to be here in a few weeks, by the way, I'm really excited about that. Um, we would spend hours pouring over the Sears wish book together. We would look through. Um, it was the only way that we could let our family know what we really wanted for Christmas. And so I would grab my dad's magnifying glass because sometimes it was printed poorly and you couldn't see all the details in the action figures, you know. And so I'd be going through like, oh, I want this one. And so I had this pretty detailed system for marking the pages. So I'd go through and I'd circle everything that interested me first, right? And of course, I had my own color. Brandy had her own color. So then I go through the first time and I'd circle the things that I wanted. Mom remembers this, I'm sure. Then I'd go back through and I would put a little star or an asterisk by the things that I really, really wanted. Then I would go back through a second time and I would put a second asterisk by the things that I really, really, really wanted. Then I would go back through, and this could be over days, right? I would go back through and anything I'd change my mind about, I would just cross out. Right, like it's, oh, never, I don't, I don't want that. Why did I put that, right? And then I would go back through one last time. And anything that had two asterisks that I really, 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 really wanted, I would put an exclamation point. I don't know why. <laughs> like, I don't know why it wasn't a third star or asterisk. I still, to this day, have no idea. But inevitably, my mom would go through the catalog. And she goes, okay, I'm going to need you to go back through here and actually look at some clothes and some practical things. I mean, me, I'm like all in on the toys, right? She'd be like, okay, maybe just a few things that are practical that you like just to give us some kind of clue. And so once that process was over, though, that's when the real anticipation began because you had no idea what was going to happen. Like someone might show up at your Christmas and they might bring you something that wasn't in the wish book. Bless you. And it might even be better than the stuff that you had no idea. Like it was, you, it was just like the promise of getting these gifts and all this preparation to receive these gifts. But there was still the surprise of what would actually happen. And let me just say, parents, this whole insane idea of sending your kids to bed early on Christmas Eve. Okay, listen, I know, I know you got stuff to do, but listen, it ain't going to work. It's not. Okay, because we're just going to lay there. We're going to get out of bed like five times. I'm saying that like I'm still like this. I probably am, okay. But it's like we would do our very best. We wanted to go to sleep, guys. Listen, mom, dad, we wanted to go to sleep. We couldn't because our little hearts are going. Like we're staring at the ceiling. It's like, oh, this is what insomnia is like. Okay, you know, seven-year-old child. Anyway. We would just lay there awake, looking up at the ceiling, and any noise, if you were into Santa, like any noise on the roof, what was that? Dogs are barking. He must be around, right? That's what it's like to anticipate something, and I miss that. So the word anticipation is what we're going to be talking about today. This is from the dictionary. It's just a prior action that takes into account or forestalls a later action, or the act of looking forward, especially pleasurable expectation. So each advent, we look at these writings that people long ago wrote down, these prophets that foretold the arrival of our Messiah. But we also look forward to this day when Messiah will return. And we talked about this last week, but their world, it was marked with like fear and pain and suffering, oppression, uncertainty, strife, people trying to take political advantage of one another. And we learned last week that in the midst of all of that and even way back before, God promised to send someone who would be empowered to make everything right. That's what we celebrate. 
But it's easy for us to be worn down by this world to what I call surrender to despair and hopelessness. I think it's easier than ever because we get to hear all the bad things that are happening in the world at once, don't we? So how do we have that childlike anticipation, especially of Messiah in our lives? Like how do we recapture that thing? And, and, and not just like waiting for him to do something, but expecting him to do something. I think there's a difference there. And then actively participating in the hope of that expectation. How do, how do we do those things? How do we make that a reality? Well, a scripture was read earlier, very, very like adorably, I might add, right? It's the coolest thing in the world. I love to hear kids read scripture. But Isaiah 11 is this key prophecy that helps us, I think, anticipate the arrival of Messiah right now. Not like waiting, not for this future Christmas, not for December 25th, but like right now. So we're going to begin with verse 1 and take a look at this today. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And let me just say, I know you're thinking it, that's a weird thing to read at Christmas, isn't it? It's kind of odd. So of course we know that many of these scriptures are, are prophecies. But still, what exactly is happening in this? We have to understand the context. And so Isaiah 111, why is there a stump of a tree that we're talking about in this context? Well, how do you get a stump of a tree? What has to happen? Trees got to get cut down, don't they? So if you flip back to Isaiah 10, there at the very end, 33 and 34, the writer invites us to imagine the tallest, most vast, biggest forest that we've ever seen in our lives. Right? And he talks about that forest representing a few things. But one of the things that it represents is this arrogance that human evil has when it sets itself up against God. And so, of course, the result of that, right? He just comes through. He just chops it down. And verse 33, it says, with terrifying power, God reduces this entire forest to stumps and brush. The tallest, most powerful forces of this world are chopped down. So to God's people living under oppression when this prophecy was written, but then also when Messiah comes onto the scene, this passage offers some hope. Because it seems when all is lost, when there's no way that Israel will recover from this cycle that they have themselves in, where they are close to God, they start to fall away from him in their confidence and their prosperity many times. And then they end up down here where they cry out to him because an oppressor or someone comes in. And so then when they cry to, cry to God, of course, he's good and he's merciful. And so he rescues them. And then they come back to him only to start that cycle over and over again. If you want a depressing read sometime, just read through the book of Judges because that's how every story goes, right? So to those people who had known those stories, had grown up hearing those things, when all is lost, there's hope in this scripture right here, 11.1. 1. Something new begins to grow from this stump. But this isn't just any stump, right? This stump is from the same root, the same lineage of King David. And actually, it was promised that Messiah would also come from the same root. You can read about how Jesus fills that in Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 1 up to 16. But David, King David, was Israel's greatest king of all time. 
I mean, Solomon did some pretty cool things, but David was Israel's greatest king because he was a man after God's own heart. And so in Ezekiel 34, God describes David as his choice of king for these very reasons. And I think these are, it's pretty beautiful, actually. It's not because he was talented. It's not because he'd killed giants or bears. It's not because he was a fierce warrior. All these things that we read about that are true about him. God said that David was his choice of king because he will shepherd and feed the people. I think that's important. David was just a man though, right? He was imperfect. We know that he made some pretty huge mistakes. And even the prophets anticipated that there would be a king that would be like David, but would be perfect, would be even better than David. Hosea 3.5 predicted that this perfect king would bring God's people back to him. The Messiah would fulfill this promise in ways that a man like David could not. And so today I want to look at a few of those promises that Messiah offers, not just to God's people here, but to God's people here, to us as well. The first thing is Messiah promises us redemption. Again, God promised long ago at the very beginning, and I love that, like literally right after mankind falls, boom, immediately God has a plan. Here's what's going to happen. It's like he had a plan all along perhaps. Hmm, interesting. Anyway. You get my point. From the very beginning, God had this plan. It was a plan of redemption. He would redeem this fallen world. He would bring his people back to him. And he would make a way for humankind to have that eternal relationship that he wanted in the very beginning. That was his desire. That was his heart. And so he found a way to make that happen once again. Uh, In John 14, verses six through seven, here's what Jesus had to say about it all. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have also known my father or know my father also, I'm sorry. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What's he saying? He's making it clear. Listen, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I am what leads to the father. And so we find redemption, the promise of redemption, by turning from our way to his way and following him. We talk about that a lot lately, but I think it's important to keep coming back to that. We turn from our way and we follow him. But what's really cool is that Jesus uniquely fulfilled, and I don't have the number, but it's hundreds, hundreds of prophecies that anticipated the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled them and most of them, and he will fulfill the rest of them. So he is everything that we need. He goes on to say in John 14, verse 7, that we know and have seen the Father through our connection with him. So this promise of redemption and this connection to the Father comes through Jesus. God promised that he would send a light into this world that would illuminate our dark world. And if you read uh, John's gospel, he loves to talk about that light. He likes to contrast light and dark and good and evil and all these things. It's really, really, um, if you're an imagery person, It's really, really cool. But God promised to send this light that would illuminate our dark world. And of course, that light, most of us hopefully know, is Jesus. His name's Yeshua in Hebrew, which means salvation. And he would be empowered by God to set everything right. But God didn't just wind up this world and set it free like a top. Because I think sometimes uh, even we as believers can fall into those lines of thinking, right? Sometimes we feel like God doesn't see or God doesn't know what's going on with us or God just basically built everything and then kind of set it free to do its thing and then eventually he's gonna come and maybe interrupt what's happening. No, we serve a God that not only wants and desires a relationship with us, but he's involved. He cares about what's happening with us. Um, His plan has been activated and Messiah is his redemption plan. 
Well, what does that plan look like in practice would probably be the question, at least that I'm asking. You can ask your own questions and read it at home. But um, what's that plan look like? Like, what should we anticipate? What should we expect? Well, let's continue in Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, which means fairness, for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Paul will steal that later for uh, our armor, our spiritual armor, by the way. That's where he gets that. So there's a lot here. Good kings, good rulers, people who love their countries, especially uh, in this time, had a lot to manage if you think about it. So they had to protect their people from anyone who would want to do them harm. Uh, They had to provide for the needs of their people. If they couldn't get to water, if they didn't have livestock, if crops were not growing, those were all concerns that a king would be involved in because they want to make sure that their people are taken care of. Uh, They had to pursue, at least they should be if they're a good king, right? They should be pursuing the very best future for their people. And so what this means is they would provide stability and justice. They would also settle disputes and dispense wisdom. And here's the thing. We just talked about this, but Israel prospered. Israel prospered when her kings made God the priority. When God was first, when God was the thing that they were chasing after, Israel did well. And any time that Israel fell away from that or they had a king that was in place that maybe wasn't on that page, things went sour, things went bad. And so even the best kings though, and we see this with David, right? Even the best kings could be swayed by people. They could be swayed by circumstances. They could be swayed by the pressures of leadership. But what scripture promises us is that Messiah would be different. And there's a word that popped up here a bunch. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's the word righteousness. And so when you see that word, the kinds of things that probably come to your mind, if you're like me, are someone who's holy or someone who's really, really good or someone who is just or someone who knows how to maybe even follow all the rules or those kinds of things. Someone, this perfect person is how I would describe someone who's righteous when I think about that word. But what's interesting in this usage here, and again, I don't know if you notice the connection, but the word righteousness is connected to things like judging the poor and deciding what's fair for the meek and even carrying out the results of those judgments. So, of course, we're going to ask the question, why? Why is righteousness connected with folks who seem like they're disadvantaged? I mean, because the righteousness that we want Jesus to bring, right? We want him to come in and we want him to come in swinging, like taking out all of the evil powers of this world and taking them down. And so when I read it connected with things like people basically that are in need, I'm like, what is up with that? So the key to understanding this is we have to kind of dig in just a little bit to the Jewish link as far as righteousness is concerned. We take it for granted, of course, that our Messiah is righteous. Sadiq is the word there. But Jewish sages had this to say. 
They said, according to scripture, there were only two human beings that were ever called righteous and their names may surprise you. Noah and Joseph. Interesting. Here's why. According to Jewish sages, they said both Noah and Joseph were called righteous because they fed the poor. I didn't know that. Did you know that? So this is why in Hebrew, almsgiving, giving uh, alms to someone who's poor, is called sadaka. And guess what? That's also the word that's used for righteousness. It's literally righteousness. So why does this matter in context of what we're talking about and our Messiah and Jesus and all that stuff? Well, here's why. Because one of the things that Messiah was expected to do is to provide for the needs of his people. That's one of the things that they expected him to do. So it's no coincidence that we see Jesus feeding thousands of people with very few resources. We see Jesus healing people, doing all kinds of things for people who are in need as a major part of his ministry. So the judgment and the justice that we see in this passage that Messiah brings, it's related to giving, specifically to giving to those who are in need. And in our case, right, giving to those who don't deserve it. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, there's nothing we can do to merit the grace or righteousness of God, right? He is here where I can't go low enough, right? But for us, I mean, we're, we're a fallen creation. We, we've, we're rebellious. We've made these choices. And so you have God who's righteous and then you have us. And so you have a Messiah who comes in and by his love and his grace and his mercy, those of us who are in need, right? The poor, that's us. Even if you're not monetarily poor, poor in spirit, right? We're the ones that he comes and he redeems. Messiah promises the meeting of our greatest need, guys. That's redemption through his grace and his goodness. So that's his first promise. And here's the second one. Messiah promises power. And we get excited about this one, don't we? Like, yeah. Oh, it's gonna be awesome. When Jesus comes back, I'm shooting lightning out of my hands. I had a group of friends when I grew up in church that they all agreed that, you know what? When Jesus comes back, let's meet on the sun. This is the kind of stuff that kids talk about. I love it. Okay, you in? Yeah, I'm in. If we remember. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So Messiah promises power. We have the scripture, many scriptures actually, that Messiah um, predicted he would be more than a man, that he would be fully empowered by God's spirit to lead his people. Uh, in Matthew 3, 16 and 7, we see Jesus fulfill this prophetic word of God's spirit resting on him. Uh, he comes out of the water when he's baptized. And I love the first word of this. Immediately, we like immediately, don't we? Immediately he went up from out of the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, guys, is uniquely qualified to rule. He's the only one that meets all the qualifications. He's the only one that ticks all the boxes. Psalm 86, 15 says this, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We read last week that 
Jesus, our Messiah, is God's word made flesh. So words like this, you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Messiah. That's Jesus in our lives. He's the only perfect example of what it looks like to live a life that fully delights in God's word. It's the only example. A life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, a life of gentleness. How about a life of self-control? Some of the things that Jesus endured. Human leaders may have some of these qualities, but Jesus is the definition of all of these qualities. Psalm 119, uh, beginning with verse 89, states that God's word is firmly fixed and faithful to all generations. And so putting all these things together, what this tells me is that we love and serve a Messiah that is not deceived by appearances, that is not led astray by emotion, that he is faithful to God's plans for his people. And that's a promise that we can hold on to. That's a powerful promise. Jesus alone, guys, has the power to change our lives, right? I can get up here, I I mean, I could say whatever, I could give you the very best message ever written and it wouldn't, I would have to steal it from somebody, but it would be really good, right? But that's not gonna change your heart. The only thing that's gonna change a human heart is God. He's the only one that can. So we have to remember that. We have to anticipate that he has the power to rush into our lives and change situations when we look to him to do that. But we can also look to Jesus to know what's right and to count on him to make it right. And that brings us to our final promise of Messiah. Messiah promises peace. Yeah, there it is. Messiah promises peace. So here's the result of this whole anticipated, like this arrival that we're waiting for, that we're anticipating. This is the result. It happens in Isaiah 11, starting with verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place will be glorious. So part of the redemption and the rule that come from Messiah, part of what happens is restoration. And I like to think that this is a picture of the way things were before our world was fallen but I want you to put some flesh and blood on this because we read through it and we're like, oh, the wolf's with the lamb. That's really cool. They're hanging out together. Listen, I mean, have you ever seen a lamb like the way they behave with each other? Best videos on the internet, by the way. Or any baby goat video. Yeah, those are really good too. So let me try and put some flesh and blood on this with a little bit of help from Eugene Peterson. The calf, oh wait, let me go back. Here we go. Let's start here. The wolf and the lamb romping around together. 
picture that in your mind for a second. Leopards and baby goats taking naps with each other. The calf and the lion sharing vegetarian takeout with each other. It's biblical, it's right there. And a little child tending them all, unafraid. Think about the collection of animals we just described. And you have a little kid that's right there in the mix, wrestling with everybody, hanging out, having fun. And then it goes on. A cow and a bear will graze in the same pasture and their calves and cubs will grow up together. Imagine a bear. Yeah, my cousin's a cow. It's cool. Free milk. (laughs) I don't know. Something to think about. Lions eating straw like an ox. So does that mean all of their teeth are going to change? I have so many questions, right? I don't know. But then we get to this, and this is what blows me away. So we have a nursing child. We're talking a very small infant crawling over cobra or rattlesnake. I mean, what, you pick your favorite venomous snake and just put it in there, just insert it. Like crawling over their dens. And I don't think the den, by the way, in this situation is just on the way to where that kid's going. I think that kid is headed for snakes is what I'm trying to tell you. And then we have a toddler, and this is my proof, sticking his hand down the hole of this serpent because he's trying to find somebody to play with. You gotta think about what these things say and like what that, visualize what this looks like, what this promise could be like. We see all of these creatures who should be, who are in our world now, enemies, actually sharing life together. Does that not give you hope? Does that not even give you hope that that's possible, maybe even now in ways that we can't imagine? All of them are at peace in this situation. Because when we imagine peace, we just mean, you know, we imagine it as like the, the truce in the backseat of the car on vacation, you know. I'm going to draw a line on the seat. Don't cross it. Mom, mom. Her hand's on my side of the line. Right? So when that stops, that's what we consider to be peace because that noise isn't happening. We, okay, all the way over to your side. And if you were lucky enough to have the card that had the fold down thing in the back, you could just put that down. One more word. Don't make me stop this car. Right? When we imagine peace, we imagine this sort of forced truce where you have the sides that, okay, hug your sister, right? That's what we imagine. That's not what this describes. This describes these creatures that are all just happy to be together and are at peace. But have you ever stopped to think about why? I love the question why. Unless my kids are asking it, then I don't. (laughs) Well, sometimes I do. Why? Why are they all happy? Why is everybody at peace? Why are snakes and kids and cats and dogs living together, right? Whatever. What, why is that happening in this story? Well, I think there's some clues, actually. Here's why. They're satisfied. They're satisfied. If you read through that passage again, 
you see that the baby animals and the humans, everybody's sharing meals. Their needs are met. I mean, there's a reason that a nursing child is mentioned. All of those things, everybody's eating grain, everybody's happy. It's because they're all satisfied. Their needs are met and they are at peace. The righteousness of Messiah is related to providing for the practical needs of people, guys. So when people come and they might say, well, listen, you know, it's all about evangelism. It's all about Jesus. Listen, one of the things that Jesus was an expert at in setting an example is taking care of other people. And so part of our calling, part of our challenge, if we're supposed to be like him, Christians, baby Christs, right? Is to do the same things that he did. Sidebar there. But why should we anticipate the promises of redemption and of power and of peace? Why should we anticipate them now is the question. Here's why. Because that's the only way that we are gonna be satisfied as people. And let me just say, it's very easy to walk around this world dissatisfied. You don't have to work at that. In fact, many people online will help you get there if you'd like, right? Life, especially in this season, the holiday season, can lure us into trying to find our satisfaction in all of these places, We think that the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend or the right husband or the right wife or the right family members or friends or whatever is, they're they're, going to fill that emptiness that we have in our lives. But the truth of the matter is, people will fail you. People, people that love you and that you love will disappoint you at times. And if you haven't experienced that, you have an awesome group of people that you hang out with. You need to stick with them if you don't disappoint them. You get what I'm saying? People will fail you. So we think about all the stuff that we want, you know, the wish book list that we think is gonna satisfy the emptiness that we have. Material things break. Material things get lost. Material things disappoint. And one year from now or less, you're gonna be making a whole new list. So we think that the power, like having power in life, the power to declare our own destiny, right? We think that having power or we think uh, achievement even or maybe money, that those things will satisfy us. But power in this world, if anything, all you have to do is look at a little history and you'll see that power is fleeting. It never lasts Whoever's the top dog will someday be the bottom dog or not exist any longer. Go back and look through history at all of the the biggest, most advanced societies that no longer exist on this planet. Power in this world is fleeting. Opinions change overnight, right? And if you're an Instagram influencer like me, you know that that's true. Because last year, Uggs were not cool, and this year, Uggs are. I don't know if that's true or not. That was not an endorsement, by the way. Right? Opinions change. And you know what? Every earthly achievement that you can imagine, anything that you could achieve, whatever it is, a degree, an advancement, uh, being the president of the company, all that stuff, you know what question always follows? What's next? What now? How do I supersede this achievement? 
Our band played in front of 80,000 people. Well, I think it's time to play in front of 90,000. See, see what I mean? Like, it's always what's next. These things do not satisfy. They will never satisfy and they will never bring peace, which is what our Messiah promises. You probably heard the Christmas song, maybe even on your way here today. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Have you ever thought about what that's actually saying or what it means? I think that that's actually a scriptural concept right there. That the satisfaction that we seek, guys, it starts right here. It starts in our hearts. If we're not at peace, how can we expect our world to be at peace when we're not even at peace in our own hearts? or within our own families. I mean, you can keep extending that circle out, but it always comes back to you. It always comes back to me. So in Isaiah's prophecy, we see neither animal or human will hurt or kill. We see the whole earth is flooded with the knowledge of God and we'll know, all people will know, which is cool to think about, all people, that means everyone, all people will know God alive with Jesus in his rightful place raised up at the center of it all. That's how that passage ends. And then it says, and his headquarters is gonna be really sweet too, right? It follows like that's the last thing it says. But what that means is like, that's a place that everybody will want to be. Everybody will want to go there. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We've heard that before, but he offers us peace right now. And a peace that's personal, but it's also permanent because so many other things that we shoot for when it comes to peace don't seem to last. He offers that to us right now. His peace redeems us and forgives us for our past. His peace has the power to calm and stabilize our present situation. And his peace makes a way for our future as well. So here's the question as you guys go away this week. I want you to think, do you have that kind of childlike anticipation in your lives? Especially when it comes to Jesus and his return. Because I have to imagine, even God's people at this time, a lot of them may have been thinking in their heads, well, you know what? We thought this was gonna happen a long time ago and things are really bad. And you start to have these questions or maybe think, oh, this isn't gonna happen. How about you? Like, where are you at on that? Do you believe these promises that God has made us? Do you have that childlike anticipation of Messiah, not only coming back, but even just what he could do in your life right now? Our lives right now can be flooded with the knowledge of his glory that it's, that's talked about here. But the depth of that water is up to us, right? That that picture of his knowledge of who he is and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his joy and his patience keep on going down the list of fruits right like all of that can be ours can flood our lives but the choice of how deep that water is is up to us so do we look at the promises of messiah like god's wish book knowing that we can circle those promises those things that god has said would happen and know that even the ones that we've not seen yet that he will deliver on those things do we greet each day with this anticipation that the creator of the universe loves us and wants relationship with us and wants to be directly involved with our lives? So today, no matter where you are, no matter where you've come from, what you've done, the Messiah, the Savior of the world has come for you. 
for you. And I'll close with this. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus promises redemption. He promises power and he promises peace. But we have to open our hearts to him. We have to open our hearts to that light and let him shine that light into the dark corners of our lives. Places maybe where other people don't go. Maybe we don't like to go. We have to let him restore the things that have been lost. The light of Messiah is here and he has declared that you and I never have to walk in darkness again. Would you bow your hearts with me? God, thank you for your son. Thank you for our Messiah. We thank you that he uniquely fulfills these promises and that they're not things that we have to wait for, but that you hold them out. And that like any gift, all we have to do is receive it. We thank you for the peace and for the forgiveness that he offers us. And we thank you just for your graciousness to us. God, the stresses and the signs of our fallen world are everywhere. And I know that there are others in this room uh, like myself that were overwhelmed and bombarded at times with them. And God, many of us are at the end of ourselves and we see no way to overcome the challenges of our lives. But the good news that we hold on to, God, is that you've already overcome this world. That you offer the promise of peace in our lives and in our hearts. This very second, you have the power to deliver on that promise. So God, we pray that you'd help us to align our focus on Jesus as the center of our lives, that he would be held up high not just in this holiday season, but to guide the year ahead for us too. And may we live satisfied in him. And may you be glorified by him in our lives. And we pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.